I'm going to go over Thessalonians over eight weeks, but I'm not going to do eight weeks straight because I'm going to do it like four, and then the next time I love to talk, I'll do the other four. So that's what I'm going to do. If you miss a week or something, uh, I think the audio is put online. You can go back and listen to it. That's fine. Uh, but uh, I kept coming back to Thessalonians. Uh, so we're going to dive into that uh, tonight. Uh, there's kind of a misconception about the church, people that are outside the church, or non-church people, or, 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 or uh, they think that people that are in the church are somehow insulated from the real struggles of life. If you've been in church a long time, you know this is just really not true. You can be a Christian and a church member and still have lots of struggles and still have lots of problems. Uh, but sometimes in the church, we, we kind of perpetuate this idea, and you kind of live by this unwritten rule that that, uh, you know, when anyone asks how you're doing, everyone's doing great, everyone's doing fine, you know, this kind of thing. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of like that old phrase, never let them see you sweat. Uh, and uh, we go by and we're all good. But we all, we know that there is, there are struggles and there's difficulties in life. But the difference between people inside the church and outside the church is, hopefully, there is something that really changes it. And that's a, that's a change that you have a relationship with God. There's a transformation that has happened and that you have realized that this life is just temporary and the struggles that come, I can still be a person of joy, I can still be a person of hope because this life is just temporary. And my eternal life is going to be much better than this temporary life. So there's a whole different perspective. There's a whole different life, uh, uh, way you live your life. So it's all about the transformation of heart. And our culture today, America and the world, the whole world, needs a transformation. We need a true transformation of heart. The city of Thessalonica, uh, I'm not going to dig into all the history of the, of the city and all, but basically it's kind of Greece, okay? That area is where we're talking geographically. These people needed a transformation when this letter was written by Paul. Uh, at the time, it was probably 200,000 Romans, Greeks, and Jews lived in this city. Uh, it was a bustling port, so lots of commerce, busy highways, the Roman Empire, the main Roman road came through Thessalonica, so one of the most influential cities in the first century. It was basically uh, New York or Houston or Boston of today. It had all the assets, uh, but it also was a very lost city. The Greeks filled the temples, the Jews attended the synagogues, and the Romans paid homage to Caesar. So you kind of got a little melting pot here, and everybody can worship whatever God, little g-god you want to worship, uh, and that's all great. So it's basically a lost city. The Apostle Paul goes there in his second missionary journey, and he goes there for a short time, uh, only about three weeks, because as he goes into the Jewish synagogue, uh, some of the other uh, Jewish leaders hear what he's doing, and they run him out of town, him and Silas and, and Timothy, and they run him out of town. And so now when he starts writing this letter, he hears from Timothy later on that, sure enough, he, he preached the gospel. He preached the, that Jesus and, and the difference he makes based on Old Testament passages, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is going to come again. And, and there were enough people there, and they started a little church, and enough people there that Thanksgiving, uh, the book of Thessalonians is a book of Thanksgiving. Paul is, is very grateful for what he's, he's hearing reports of the new church in Thessalonica. They're actually spreading the gospel. They're living for Christ. So he's very grateful for that. Main idea I want you to get tonight, it's the top thing I put on your sheet, because uh, the gospel will affect every area of our lives, including our passion for living today and our hope for what is coming tomorrow. That God transforms us, he changes us, he saves us, and we need to make sure that's a genuine conversion. And the only way you can know it's a genuine, real conversion is if you see some, you produce some visible results. These people in Thessalonica are producing visible results. And he says, I commend you for uh, acting upon a genuine salvation experience you had with Christ. So he's grateful for that. So he's writing to the church as a whole. So tonight we're going to look kind of as church as a whole. What is he saying about this church? And should we as a church, as Kelvia High Baptist Church, should we copy should we have characteristics the same as this church that Paul commends? I would love to be uh, affirmed and commended by Paul. <laughs> You're doing pretty well if you are. And I think Kelvia Heights does, does pretty good copy of all these things. 
So let's look at the passage. I'm going to read it all, the first ten verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy of the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all Macedonia and Acacia who believe. For from you and the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He identifies here three characteristics of their authentic, their genuine faith. He says that it was genuine, dynamic, and contagious. First, they were a genuine church. He starts out with a kind of customary greeting he normally does in his letters, but he expresses this joy of hearing a good report from Timothy concerning the status of the church. Again, he was only there for maybe three weeks before he got ran out of town, and he didn't know if what he did was going to produce results. And upon hearing this result, this report, he knows the gospel is spreading because these people are sharing their faith, they're, they're being authentic, they're being real, and the gospel is spreading. If someone had accused them of being genuine followers of Jesus Christ, the evidence would have convicted them. Good question for you and I. If someone brings us up on trial and says, you are a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? He knew that they were elected by God. I'm not going to get into Calvinism versus Arminianism. Uh, We Baptist circles love to go back and forth with that. But basically you're saying God is sovereign and he knows who's going to be saved versus man's free will and we get to choose God. I like to err on the side that God knows who's going to be saved before they get saved. I think you always err on too big God than too big man because God does know everything. Whether he looks from the future past or he, God knows everything. He's sovereign. If you go too far that way, and if you go too far hyper-Calvinist, then you say, well, God knows who's going to be saved. I don't need to evangelize. Because God knows if you're going to be saved or not, so I don't need to tell you about Jesus and what he does for me. That's a hyper-Calvinist. I'm not that. I think you've gone too far. I think God uses us to share how he's made a difference in our lives, to share with other relationships with people we have on this earth, to share the gospel and to spread it. For sure he did it with the Thessalonians here. Um, But he says that you are the elect of God. And how does he know that they're elected by God or that God chose to save them? Well, he can tell by their faith. Their faith is working. Their faith is is busy. They're they're excited. They're passionate about the difference God has made in their life, the gospel's made in their life. And he says, I can tell that God has saved you. You're the elect. You're a Christian. A couple of things. uh, So they're genuine. They're authentic. You see that they had this genuine conversion. It changes their direction in verses 4 through 6. Again, Paul was only there for about three weeks, uh, and the pagan Jews came and ran him out of town. Uh, But as he was there, he preached in the Jewish synagogues. He preached Old Testament scriptures. He pointed to the risen Lord Jesus and his own personal encounter with the Lord uh, in Acts 9. We're not going to dig all into that, but in Acts 17 says also, what he did there, and it says in Acts 17, verse 2, it says, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So he's getting their eyes off of their circumstances and they're under their Roman oppression and all the things that are wrong with their, their, their world that they see and live. And he's saying, but there is one greater, the true God, Jesus Christ, and I'm proclaiming that Messiah that's going to change your life forever, and he proclaimed it. And these people responded to it. So he, of course, preached the scriptures, which is important for anyone to come 
uh, to a saving knowledge of who Christ is, you have to understand God's word or that you're sure enough you're a sinner in need of a savior. Uh, so that's part of the equation for people to come to know the gospel or become Christians. Uh, but also he says, for the gospel to take root, God's spirit must intervene. And God's spirit did a great thing in Thessalonica. Uh, He says in verse 5 that there was great power of the Holy Spirit was at work. Kind of reminds you of of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit of God, it takes in great revivals, the great awakening and revival in America. Uh, We want that to happen again, but it takes the Spirit of God to do something that only can be explained by a Jehovah God. It's not in man's efforts. You see, of course, men preaching the gospel and proclaiming the word of God, but then God's Spirit has to make the salvations happen. works hand in hand, the power of the Holy Spirit. So those things were both active and happening, and Paul is grateful for that happening. In verse 6, notice what he says, uh, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy uh, of the the Holy Spirit. Joy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, You received the word in much affliction with joy. It seems, like, it seems like an oxymoron. That is not something you would hear in America. Man, you just got the joy and affliction. Those things don't go together. But yet that's exactly what these people were having happen. It couldn't be explained any other in, in, in man, man-like ways. It, it, it was only God through the Spirit that was bringing them a joy. That they were looking beyond their circumstances, beyond their, uh, their, just their physical lives. They were looking to something greater, and they had an eternal perspective. Only God could put joy when affliction hits. Um, and that's what Paul was thanking them for. How is this kind of joy? What is, what is this joy? You know, It's not a joy of my Super Bowl team won or lost. That doesn't bring joy, probably. Uh, no, this joy he's talking about is unspeakable. It's a joy found in the gospel. It's a joy uh, that only the Holy Spirit can bring. It comes with knowing and having a relationship and having the peace of God. It's a joy that knows God will make all things right one day. It's a joy uh, and would never be taken away from Paul as he's even in prison later on and writing these epistles. He was still praising God, rejoicing, singing, all this, saving, saving uh, prison guards and all sorts of things. He had a joy regardless of his circumstances. It's a joy not dependent on the ups and downs of life or on the ups and downs of economy or the ups and downs of an election. It doesn't matter. It's a joy that will see us through trials and tribulations and even through death. That's how Paul says, you're imitating me, which he has this joy in relationship with God, but ultimately you're imitating Christ. Which, did Christ have much affliction? Yep, he did. But he was able to count it as joy because he's fulfilling his mission that his heavenly father wanted him to to do and fulfill. Ultimately to allow salvation to come to each of us. So it changes your direction, but also genuine conversion changes your affection. Look at verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This happens whenever anyone embraces the gospel. They, 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 they will turn from idols. The, word, the Christian word is repentance. 180 degree turn, I'm going to turn from sin, I'm going to turn towards God and and his love, turn to God as faith, and they're going to turn their lives over to God in service. So you first repent of your sin and and you accept, you you put your faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, paid the price for our sins, and then because of that, out of allegiance to him and what he did, I now want to serve him. So then there's going to be works. I'm I'm going to obey the commands that are here, I'm going to not do the things that God's word says I shouldn't do. I'm going to avoid those things, and I'm going to do the things it says I should do. Why? Because my allegiance is to him. But he talks about idols, uh, and uh, it says they turned, these people turned away from idols. Now, we don't have golden calves, and we don't have, if y'all have those, don't worship them. They're not good for you. Uh, maybe they'll be good for gold one day, but I don't know. But get rid of those. But to say that we don't have idols... <laughs> Come on now. Uh, 
We have idols still today, and and Tim Tim Keller said this, an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and your energy and your your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Idols today, maybe something that's hanging above your fire mantle that you watch 24-7. An idol today, maybe that green paper that's in your wallet sometimes, or maybe it's digital now currency uh, idols today maybe it's my family and my family anything that's higher than god is an idol anything that you care about more than you care about following god is an idol if you're not sure what american idols are just watch the super bowl and watch the commercials it'll tell you what our what our culture values will be all shown right there on the super bowl which i don't know what this data says how many people watch but with taylor swift there it was, it was way up. <clears throat> Anyhow, I might have watched it. Anyhow, uh, that's not, it's not judging that the Super Bowl is bad. I'm just saying this is what our culture values. Idols, how can you turn from idols? Well, you've you got to have something to turn to. And these people in Thessalonica, they, they had the gospel to turn to. They had Paul, and they had the preaching of the word, and the, and the spirit of God just active in their city. And it was much better than chasing all the falsehoods and the things that never deliver, which is what idols do. They never, they never deliver on the promises they make. And they, always, they never fill that void that God has created us with, that there's just a void, that something's lacking in my life. And ultimately, it can only be filled by God, our creator. Paul is grateful that they turned from those idols and they turned. And in those days, they had all sorts of idols. They, and they're like the Greek gods, and they had, they're close to Athens, and they had all sorts of things you could worship, and, and uh, they didn't have TVs back then, but they had other things they could worship. So this transformation, grateful for their, he calls grateful for their genuine conversion. If you think throughout history, a lot of people have, have suffered greatly for following Christ. I'm grateful that we live in America and we're not, we don't really experience persecution. If you talk to these missionaries and, you know, we had Jay McGoy here Sunday and he can just say, you know, some of my people had a chance of blowing up or something like that. And he just kind of says it as he just follows. I'm like, I can't even imagine that might, it might cost you that to follow Christ. But he said, but that in those third world countries, when that happens, that's where the gospel spreads. Why? Because there's a cost if you're going to follow Christ. Well, even, even here in and Thessalonians, these people, there could be, they, had, they had problems and there was going to be persecution if they followed Christ. Sure enough, Paul, it was got so bad, Paul and Silas had to leave. But when persecution comes, you kind of realize how committed you really are to something. John MacArthur says this of some Christian martyrs in past that have, that have been martyred for their faith. Following Jesus Christ was the sum of their entire existence. At the moment when life itself was on the line, nothing else mattered besides identifying themselves with him. For these faithful believers, the name Christian was much more than a religious designation. It defined everything about them, including how they viewed both themselves and the world around them. The label underscored their love for the crucified Messiah along with their willingness to follow him no matter the cost. It told of the wholesale transformation God had produced in their hearts and witnessed to the fact that they had been made completely new in him. They had died to their old way of life, having been born again into the family of God. Christian was not simply a title, but an entirely new way of thinking, one that had serious implications for how they lived and ultimately how they died. They, uh, they had a total different way of what they were affectionate about. And, uh, and they were affectionate about following their Savior, Jesus. But also their genuine conversion changes, changes their re- uh, reflection. Look at verse 10. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. I had a friend once tell me that uh, you should always visit a cemetery before making major life decisions. It's kind of dark and morbid. But uh, his rationale is uh, remind you that life is short and uh, eternity is long. And so whatever decision you're about to make, what's it going to do when it comes to eternity? <laughs> That's what's going to matter the most. As Christians, Paul, 
commended the Thessalonians for, uh, for viewing their eternity more than their, their present circumstances. Uh, and why, how did he do this? Well, in the book of Thessalonians and even in his second letter, he taught a lot about the second coming of Christ. Of course, this is after Christ's crucifixion. And, uh, and so there was, you know, the gospel is spreading through the disciples and all that. And Paul's, and he's spreading to the uttermost parts of the world. Hasn't gone all the way across the world yet, but it's spreading. And, uh, you know, the, there was this expectation that Christ is going to come back. Now, this is only, you know, 80, 50. So this is maybe... 20 years after Christ died, so I'm sure they're like, it's going to happen any moment, you know. He still hasn't come back yet, so we're in 2023. It's been a while, uh, but he is going to come back. Paul gives them, and, and to help change their reflection, what they're thinking about, their perspective, he talks a lot about eschatology, end times. Christ is coming back again. Christ is coming back again. Why? Because we're people that forget. We focus on the things we can see and the things we can taste and touch and hear, and we forget that there is a spiritual world that's happening, and, there, and there's God's plan that's unfolding, even today and tomorrow, and for all eternity. God's plan through God's word is, is He's working out His plan, and so the enemy comes in and he starts whispering, "Yeah, but He's forgotten about you, and why would He allow this to happen in your life? And what about that happening? And what about this happening?" Yep, it will all make sense, or he will make it all right in his time, in his way. And we may not experience it in this life. We may not know, know why such and such happened, or someone, so-and-so passed away, it's too early, or we lost this job. Or it may not be explained to us right now. But we as Christians have to have faith that God is working. It, it changes our, how we reflect, how we, how we view our life, how we see everything happening. But he talks a lot about Christ is coming back, Christ is coming back, Christ is coming back. It's like a preview on a great movie. Over and over again, you've got to keep this in mind. You've got to, go, you got to experience this. It's going to be really, really good. You've got to go take part of this. As Christians, we are uh, marketed things 24-7. Actually, all people are marketed things. If you have a cell phone, you're marketed things all the time. Just get on Facebook or get on whatever social media thing you want or Google something. And then before you know it, that will be showing up as advertisements in your feed and all the things. That's AI or whatever. It's kind of scary. And if you say things out loud, sometimes Siri's listening. Do go to sleep, Siri. Don't talk to me right now. Um, but you're being marketed, and we live in a, in a world that is constantly wanting us to think about things, whether it's Valentine's Day, that is today, or maybe the next cruise you need to go on, or maybe some food you need to learn to cook. You can download some reels of how to cook your next great Instapot meal. Uh, jewelry, you can save those reels now so that you can always, you'll never remember them or where they are. Be like, man, that's great. You just put some hamburger meat and you put a can of tomatoes in and you put a whatever. It's not in my notes. Moving on. I might have done that though. I haven't cooked any of those things yet, but I'm just keeping in mind in case I ever need to know. I'm not much of a cook. I just stick with grilled cheese. Moving on. Hamburger helper. Can't mess those up. Can't mess those up. Uh, my point is, we're being marketed a lot and, you know, two weeks, I keep coming to the Super Bowl, but, you know, the NFL and, and I, I might watch some sports shows, okay, they're ESPN. And some of y'all watch HTV, God bless your souls. I just don't really watch that. Or the Hallmark Channel. I don't like it. Christy loves it. I don't know. Uh, anyhow, man, the marketing on the Super Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl. Everyone's talking about the Super Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl. And, and by the time it gets here, like, I don't even care anymore. I really, I just want it to be over, right? You know the one thing that's not marketed much? Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back. If our culture would market that as much as we market all the rest of the crud that we market, of course, this is the enemy. He's very good. My challenge for us is, do you think much about Christ coming back? Are you just focusing on the now and tomorrow and what's next week? Do you have any anticipation as a Christ follower of what is going to happen when this life is over, or if Christ comes back in my lifetime and your time, how glorious that would be. Why shouldn't Christians be in the happiest, most joyful people of all people? It doesn't mean we don't deal with cancer. It doesn't mean we don't have difficulties. It doesn't mean, it just means Christ is going to win. He's going to make everything right in his time. Even if he doesn't change the difficulties I'm facing. 
Paul commends them for having and reminds them of the hope they have that Christ is coming back. We still have that same exact hope even today. But secondly, they're also a dynamic, they're a dynamic church. The greatest independence days of the lives of any Christian is the day that uh, a person follows Jesus Christ and he sets us free from the penalty of our sin. He justifies us before the holy and just Father. And then the, the second greatest independence day is the day you understand the present implications of your salvation. You understand why he saves you. He doesn't save you just so you can get a fire insurance ticket and you're out of hell. He saves you so he wants to use you as the rest of your life here, whether that's, and not everyone is going to surrender to ministry. I did. Not everyone does. He may save you to go work in the oil field or go be a teacher or go be a stay-at-home mom or go be whatever. But he saved you so that you can make a difference in the, the years you have here on this earth for him and for his glory. When you're passionate about something, that's what you talk about all the time. Are we passionate about Christ? Are we passionate about everything else? We know what the stock market did today. We know what the weather's like. We know the price of oil. We know all these things that really don't really matter. Tell me, tell me what, how's your walk with the Lord? What is Christ showing you? What did you learn in the scriptures today? We talk about what we're passionate about. And here he says, these people in Thessalonica, the gospel's spreading because they're passionate about it. How does he know? Well, he says first that they have a working faith in verse 3a, in the first part of verse 3. Uh, I'm sorry, that takes me a while to zoom in on the little text. My eyes, I'm going to have to start reading readers all the time. I think this font's getting smaller. I'm not sure what's happening. Um, <laughs> what do you have to do? You have to pull it away, right? Anyhow, some people do. That's what I have to do. I'm going to find the verse here in a minute. Man, it got small. Remembering without ceasing your works of faith, and he labels these things, works of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. He says you have works of faith. He says on later on in the verses that the word of the Lord has sounded forth, that what they're doing, that their conversion, they're working their tails off spreading the gospel. They're doing everything they can to get everyone they know to tell them the gospel and the difference it makes in their life. He says your faith towards God has gone out. Word is spreading. They themselves declare in verses 8 and 9. Their faith showed. Okay, uh, They weren't hidden Christians. That is truly an oxymoron. They were excited because God changed their passion about the difference that God made in their lives and word is spreading. As Paul wrote this, he probably is in Corinth, but he'll later say, as he wrote to the Ephesians, he'll say that God saves for the purpose of fulfilling his purposes uh, through the way we are working in Ephesians 2.8.9. We love Ephesians 2.8, but uh, those verses say, yeah, you're saved by faith, of course, but then you're saved so that you can go work. It's not that works save us. No, you're saved, and then you go work. Problem is, too many Christians stop at the I'm saved, and we don't get to work. These people had a working faith, and it validated their Christian walk. But also they labored in love, it said, Paul says. Uh, Jesus would say uh, in John 13, 35, he would say this, that anyone, how would people know who are his followers? He said, by this all men would know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The Thessalonians had a deep, genuine love for one another. Uh, this kind of love is more than just romanticism. I know it's Valentine's, lots of, lots of red and pink today. I got a little bit of pink on here, so it's good. I don't have any hearts. Sorry, again. They don't sell shirts with hearts for men. I don't know what's going on. Uh, that's sexist that we can't wear hearts. But anyhow, um, it's not a romantic kind of love. And by the way, whoever made up Valentine's Day, brilliant. You really make men spend a lot of money. Because no matter what you, this is being recorded. No matter what you do early, this is not in my notes, so I'm definitely going off now. No matter what you do early, if you go out to eat early, which Christy and I did, we both got, we had been sick last week and we both got well and like, let's go out to eat. But you don't go on, you only go out on Valentine's Day one time here in Midland, Texas. We went to Olive Garden 10 years ago. It only took three hours. Not bad, not a bad. Never again. So now you go early or you go late. Someone shared today that we, we celebrate holidays a week late. I'm like, that's smart. You get all the discount prices. You get all, the, you know, and yeah, that's not in my notes. Uh, love. Valentine's Day is all about love, right? But it's this ooey-gooey, and it's this, like, biblical love is, I almost thought, well, you don't need to get flowers. I don't need to get flowers for my wife. We went out already. I'm good. 
But then I think the angel on my shoulder said, you better go get some flowers. <laughs> but my realist part said, I'm not spending another $60 because that's ridiculous how much they overcharge these flowers. But I did get some flowers, and I put them in a too big of a vase, and they were there when she walked home. And she was, she says, I don't need flowers, but I know she's lying. She's, she's lying, you see? So anyhow, I got flowers. This kind of love that he's talking about is not the romantic kind of love. What is this love he's talking about? It's a love that labors to the point of weariness. It's a love that sweats. It's a love that is fatigued. A genuine love that will go the distance, even to the point of exhaustion and weariness. It's a love that knows no limits and finds its ultimate source in the love of God. That's the kind, it's a sacrificial kind of love. It's the kind of love that is described in 1 John 4, 7. Love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Paul says that these people are, they're, they're loving other people like this. Again, as he's describing and commending this church, does this describe you in the church at Kelvia Heights Baptist Church? Are we a people of faith that are busy at work? Are we a people of love that love one another in all the ways that we should and, and can? Where there is no love, it does not matter what we say, it does not matter what we know, it does not matter what we do. It is all about love for one another. But then also he says that they have an enduring hope. They have an expectant and a patient hope in Christ appearing from heaven in verse 10, it says. Later on in this letter and in 2 Thessalonians, he'll address this theme a lot greater. But he says that they, they endure all things. That they have this confidence in the Lord, regardless of their circumstances. Uh, they know the Lord is, is good and just and will do what's right. Barclay, one commentator, said this, that a man can endure anything as long as he has hope, for then he's walking not to the night, but to the dawn. My first lesson of the year in my cornerstone class was on depression, so that was kind of depressing. But, um, but it was actually perfect because, and I'm not going to get into all this, someone close, in, not in my, per, my immediate family, but my extended family has pretty much lost their hope. They have been dealt some really difficult cards in life to deal with and I try to give him hope because he has no hope anymore and this can happen even in believers lives because whether you get too many, get hit too many times or you just forget the enemy's very good at his tactics and then the lies start coming if God really cared for you he wouldn't let this happen but you know that's a lie because God does really care for you and he does know what's best so it all comes out to, a, to an act of faith. But these people have an enduring hope. Um, there will be a dawn one day. And even in this life, if it's not all made right, God will make everything right eventually. We have to trust that. So this church, uh, there's a spiritual battle in the church in, in this city. Thessalonica uh, it was a very important city. It was kind of the bridge to the west and, and if, if there was a church start in Thessalonica, the enemy knew, Satan knew that the gospel then was going to spread in both directions, east and west. And so the enemy was having a heyday doing his thing, trying to stop this church from happening. But yet the gospel still spreading. God is good and he's, he's up there. And these people have hope that things will get better one day. They pressed in with confidence to their living God, the assurance of their salvation, and the certainty of a future in Christ one day. How committed are we when the going gets tough? Do the tough get going or do we just quit? It's just too hard. If you read about the martyrs and those that have lost their lives throughout history and whatever, like, and even, even hearing some of our missionaries and hearing, uh, I can't think of his name, the Pakistani missionary that comes quite often and the amount of persecution they have. Every time I hear him talk, I feel really lazy. And I feel really like a weak pastor. <laughs> because the things that I think I just have to have, they don't have any of those things. One of the greatest, I think one of the strongest things that stops Christianity from spreading in America is just our sense for comfortability. As long as I'm comfortable, as long as there are prosperity gospels preached, you know, ultimately where's the, 
one of the number one places that prosperity gospels preach would be Lakewood Church, right? They had a shooting this week in Lakewood Church. Evil got in there. Evil happens, but God is at work. These people, regardless of the cost, they knew following Christ was worth it. Take up your cross and follow me. And then last, they're a contagious church. Think for a minute how many churches you pass every day in Midland, Texas. Think about it, for real. We have a lot of churches in Midland, Texas. Some places have no churches, which is why we have missionaries that go to these places. But probably you don't know much about what happens on the inside of those churches. You probably only just see, and maybe you'll see a sign that has a slogan or something, advertising. But we don't know much about what happens in these churches because we kind of live in a culture that says what happens in the church stays in the church, right? Well, you read the Great Commission and you read these things. What happens at the church, of course, is not the building. The church is the people in the building. The people are all in the community of West Texas and Midland, Texas and all around. The church is the people. We're the church. So the plan for the church is for the people inside the church to take the message to those outside the church. The Great Commission is not an invitation for outsiders to come and hear, but for the church to go and tell. We kind of live in a mentality, invite them to church, invite them to church, invite them to church. No, the church goes out to them. You work with them. You teach them. You see them in the restaurants. You're the testimony of God and the difference he makes in the, in the people that you come in contact with. These people in Thessalonica were, they had a contagious proclamation. Now their city had all sorts of philosophers and deep thinkers. Religious cravings could be satisfied by all sorts of things. You can go to the synagogue, you can go to a temple, you can go worship an idol. But Paul makes it clear that the gospel was not just some philosophy, philosophy among many, that the gospel was of Jesus Christ. And this is the Lord's message because it came from the one true God. This is the real Big G guy. Listen. They had a message of divine revelation from God himself, from Paul. They heard the message. They turned from their sin. They turned from their idols. And their natural response was to live it and proclaim it. They could not be silent about the message of their transformed lives anymore. So it was contagious that way, but also contagious in their, in their passion. Such good news needed to be shared. Your faith towards God has gone out, Paul says. I've heard about your faith. You're sharing your faith. You're sharing the difference God makes in your life. I do believe Kelvia Heights is a church that is outward thinking. I think every church could be more outward thinking. I've also served in I've heard, I've served four or five different churches, and I've been in some churches that are very inward thinking, meaning uh, it's all about the next committee meeting to satisfy Brother Bill Bob, whatever his name is, and he's going to kind of run this committee and make sure that whatever he wants, he's very negative, this guy. I won't say what his real name is, but uh, it wasn't Bill Bob. I just made that up. But uh, have you ever been a part of a church where you're like, is that really all we're going to talk about is just making sure we're comfortable and the AC worked here or didn't work there and problem solved, put out that fire. And then like the gospel message, we have the greatest message ever to tell. We should be doing something with it. Why aren't we doing some things that are community driven? Why aren't we doing some things that are, are mission, mission minded? I've been in a couple of churches that I think are very outward thinking. Uh, my first church was called Iago Federated Church. It was a very interesting little country church in southwest Houston. Um, but it was not quite to Houston. Now it's all kind of blended. Houston just keeps growing, you know. But um, it had different uh, denominational groups. This was Christie's granddad's church. It was my first ministry job. And they called me to be their youth pastor. And uh, they thought I was one of the kids when I got on the bus to go to Glorietta. Which I was just like four years older than them. So I was one of the kids. But... Uh, Anyhow, Iowa Federated, so you're in the rural country and everything, so they had the Baptist group, and they had a, a Methodist group, and then a anything else group. 
and they had a board, and they, it was a weird uh, way of running a church, but it worked. But they had a pastor that was, uh, he was the county commissioner, which was odd, but he also, part-time he was a preacher. He's a great guy. My point is, God blessed that church because the pastor and the church as a whole, they were about getting the word out to the community. I think God blesses Kelvia Heights Baptist Church because we get the word out. Now, we can do more in the community. Christmas in Action is for sure a way of doing that. And other mission locally, yes. But I think, imagine, and we get told a lot, how much Kelvia does globally. And being able to hear the missionaries come and thank us because we sacrificially give. And then sometimes we take mission trips and we go. But we have a global mind. We think God is at work. And, of course, he wants to save people here in Midland, Texas, but he, some people in Midland, Texas don't want to hear, they don't respond to the gospel message. It's not because they weren't given a chance. I mean, there's a church every other block. Some people are going to have to account that, sure enough, you just didn't want to hear the message, and you didn't want to repent of your sin, and you didn't want to turn to God, and you're going to pay the consequences of that. Some people never get that option in third-world countries. This church in Thessalonica was an effective church. They weren't ineffective. And I think Paul, he commends them for that, that they were about the gospel and getting the gospel out. The greatest danger of any organization is to lose sight of its reason for existence. This isn't any truer than of the local church. Why is the church here? Is it to make coffee? If we don't have coffee in your class, you're going to think that is one of our number one reasons. So let's not kid ourselves. But... um, there was a sign a number of years ago, someone posted a, on the front door of a Washington, D.C. area church, a sign that read, going out of business. Not long after the sign was posted, someone else added these words that we never really knew what our business was. How sad is that? You don't know why the church exists, but you're a part of it? Conservative estimates suggest that about 3,500 to 4,000 churches will close their doors this year. That's about 70 churches every week. Close their doors. And by the way, COVID didn't help. Now you can just stream church, so you don't have to actually come to church anymore. But guess what? If people don't come to church, guess what doesn't get collected? Offerings and tithes, probably. Although we are digital, but, oh yeah, I can just stream the church in my pajamas. Um, Yeah, that's not good. We actually need to come together. If you lived through COVID, probably wasn't real good for you. Being isolated that long, however long it was, We're actually made for relationships. We're made for community. No easier target of the enemy is someone that's totally by themselves. Easy targets. We're a community of believers. We are the body of Christ. Uh, I mean, the church is supposed to go on forever. It's the Jesus himself promised to build and to bless the church. So we should expect the church to thrive. But if you follow church history, nations have a tendency. There's like, uh, if, you, if you look through European history and all that, Great Britain. I mean, there was a great man there. Hundreds and thousands of people were in the greatest preachers were there. And, and it was a booming and the gospel was just spreading. And, and what is it today? All their churches are dwindling, becoming more pagan-like. The Lord knows how nations will come and go. I believe America is turning more and more against God and his ways. You can disagree with me. That's fine. But uh, away from our, our, our biblical principles that we grew, that we established our country on, we're turning away from them quickly. Um, but Paul commends this church. And he says, you're a light to all the Macedonian." And, uh, well, what set this church apart? Well, I've kind of talked about it a little bit. But in summary, they were grounded in their relationship with Jesus. They were firmly rooted in who they were in Christ. Grounded in the gospel. They were growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. They were not uh, affected by external circumstances. Instead, they were motivated by internal conviction that Christ was the Son of God who died to set them free. They were also passionate about their calling. They're busy doing works. They're, they're, they're spreading the gospel. They're loving one another. The gospel is not something we try on like a new pair of shoes. It's, you don't try on the gospel at all. You either embrace the gospel or you don't. And when you embrace the gospel message, it transforms your life. 
Paul would talk about the old life and the new life. There's a totally new life. We should have new motivations. We should have new people we want to associate ourselves with. We should have new, uh, the things of, in the past and that the temptations that, they're still going to be there, but we should yearn to be around God's followers, Christ's followers. Not that they're perfect. Many, Christ fo- many Christians are hypocrites. None of us are perfect. If you've never sinned, you just lied. You just sinned. Uh, so no one's perfect, but my point is we should be passionate about going the direction that people we want to be like are going. Associate with those people. They were hopeful about their future last. Uh, they firmly fixed on the return of Christ. Uh, so they were serving currently as they were in, in Thessalonica, but they were awaiting his return again. And all they knew, it could be the next day. We know now, looking back, it wasn't. But they had that expectation. They were serving and they were waiting. John Stott described this, how this worked together when he said this. Serving and waiting go together in the experience of converted people. In Christian terms, serving is getting busy for Christ on earth while waiting is looking for Christ to come from heaven. Yet those two are not incompatible. On the contrary, each balances the other. On the one hand, however hard we work or serve, there are limits to what we can accomplish. We can only improve society. We cannot perfect it. We shall never build utopia on earth. For that we have to wait for Christ to come. On the other hand, although we must look expectantly for the coming of Christ, we have no liberty to wait in idleness with arms folded and eyes closed, indifferent to the needs of the world around us. Instead, we must work even while we wait, for we are called to serve the living and true God. Thus, working and waiting go together. In combination, they will deliver us both from the presumption which thinks we can do everything and from the pessimism which thinks we can do nothing. You go too extreme, you go one way or the other, you do all your work and you're never waiting. You do all your waiting for Christ and you never work. It's not good. We should be doing both. The gospel brings hope for today and the future because we have the Spirit with us. God is with us and we know Jesus one day will return. So Paul commends them. They were, he encourages them enthusiastically. They were a small church in a hostile culture, but their faithfulness has spread across the region. What God is doing through them had spread. They were joyfully obedient to Christ, and Paul applauded them for it. They knew the true and living God. They were waiting for the Savior to return, they, and this promoted their faithfulness towards him. They had this expectant hope in the true God who loves us. As I close, Paul commends this church. The church is made up, you know, I was trying to think, you know, here's the church and here's the steeple, open the door. What is that phrase? And there's the people. I don't know how it goes. See all the people. I'm an idiot. So help me. Um, Well, the church is made up of individual people and you are those individual people. Okay. So of all these characteristics that Paul commended the church at Thessalonica for, how many of those ring true in your life? How many of those ring true in my life? You know, uh, am I genuine in my authentic relationship with God and then also horizontally in my authentic and love and relation for, for each of y'all and for everyone I come in contact with? Those are my family. Um, do I have a dynamic working faith? Am I, am I serving God the way he wants me to, however he calls me and equips me to do, whatever that could be? And some could be serving in, in, in the nursery and changing diapers. God bless your souls. I don't feel called to that. Thank goodness. I did my own kids, and I barely got through it. But, and maybe grandkids, but I'm not up for everyone else's. Okay, that's just me, personally. I'm just confessing. It's good when you're on the mic to confess, I guess. Um, But some are called to that, and we need people that do those things. And I'm sure Jamie would say, hey, if you want to help with that, go. just don't be idle. Don't, Don't do nothing. You never retire from serving God. You never do. You can retire from working making money, but you should never retire from, you never, you never get too old to be used by God. And don't ever forget that. Um, we kind of, in America, we love this, you know, we, we think for retirement and, and, and you get where you're totally independent financially and then it's just all going to be, so. and I don't have any responsibilities, I don't have to do anything and I can just watch Jeopardy all day or whatever, whatever it is. Like, that's not what a Christian's called to. Christian's not called to that. Now, you may not be able to do what you all could do, but everybody can do something. 
And I will say, one thing that we could use more people of, if you're not doing anything in the church, greeters. You simply show up 20 minutes before a service or a class, and you hand them a bulletin, you smile. And you do that once a month. Who couldn't do that? Now, you would think that is a hard thing to do, because actually showing up and remembering is the hardest part. But I'm over the greeter ministry, and I'm telling you, I need more people. So come talk to me. If God is saying, man, it's like Keith was talking to me from God. Yes, yes. Sign up for the greeter ministry. We would love to have you. My point is everybody can do something. Not everyone's called to come up here and teach. Not everyone's called to do what pastor does. But you can do something. And it's the body of Christ working together. And when that happens and then there's, there's a cohesion that happens when all sorts of different people, God saves them, the Spirit saves them. They join a body of believers at Kelvia Heights Baptist Church. They join the church, and then they say, I want to get to work. God, I want you to use me. How do you want to use me? Well, guess what? The church has lots of different ways you can use you. It's a matter of being willing and surrendering, and then find the right person that says, hey, this is what I think you should try. And it may get you out of your comfort zone. And if you try something, and sure enough, you fail at it, um, then try something different. Don't give up. Don't stop. God needs faithful people that are in love with him to be used in his church. So do that. Go on a mission trip to Costa Rica this summer. If you've never been on a mission trip, then go on this mission trip. It'll cost you something. It'll cost you some money. But it will change perspective and it will change lives. Change your life. I went on one mission trip to Honduras. And uh, I want to go on another one. Because it really does, when you get out of America, you realize what's really not important. And these people that in South America or or across the pond or whatever, I haven't been over there yet, one day. But uh, now they all have cell phones, but man, they're so receptive to the gospel. Why? Because they, they just love to have food and water on the table, and they're very receptive to the gospel. We live in a culture that is very bombarded with all sorts of information, and we just kind of don't even hear the gospel. We're numb to it. Well, that's the enemy at work. God is greater than that, of course. But I'm just saying all that. Find ways to serve in the local church here at Kelvin. There's a lot of opportunities. Paul commended them because they were genuinely life-changed by Christ and the Holy Spirit, and they were so excited and passionate about it, they couldn't help but spread it to everyone they knew. And that's why Paul commends them for it. And ultimately, even though they had difficulties, they knew Christ was going to come back and make it all right. So that gave them hope. Let me close with prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us through Christ. Thank you for each person that is here tonight. Thank you for the book of Thessalonians and for Paul writing it. And I pray that it, help, it would help us to, to gain a perspective of what a biblical, uh, efficient church looks like. That Paul, you praise them because they were walking with, with you. And they were excited about that and passionate about it, and they were spreading the gospel to everyone they could. I pray that we would be a church that do that, and also people that make up the church as individuals, we would do that as well. That we would go of our comfort zones to serve you and to know that it truly our, our joy comes in serving you and knowing you and walking with you. We thank you for that, the life we have in Christ. And in his name I pray, amen.